0: This week is truly a renaissance man, Emmy-winning writer of classic TV series including The Simpsons, MASH, and Cheers, top 40 DJ, author, blogger, podcast host, playwright, and director. Not only that, but he called baseball games with the express written consent of Major League Baseball for parts of three decades. I'm excited to introduce the only person who has worked with Alan Alda, Ted Danson, Homer Simpson, Kelsey Grammer, Jeff McKnight, Randy Johnson, and Rafael Furcal. Mr. Ken Levine. Vine.
1: Damn. I'm sitting there the whole time. Thank you. Yes. sitting there the whole
0: time saying the vine the vine the vine the vine.
1: That's all right.
0: And I love your podcast Hollywood in the Vine which I listen to every week.
1: No, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, thank you for doing this. I really like the episode you did where it was your 25 top 5. Oh, thank you. And but I thought you didn't give enough to your own shows. Like top 5 sitcoms, you cheers wasn't in there.
1: Well, I didn't want it to be self-promoting. I didn't want to toot my own horn with it. Um, So uh, I figure, you know, there's enough other people who put cheers on their top 25 list.
0: You have said that Sergeant Bilko and the Dick Van Dyke show are two of your two things that got you interested in being a comedy writer. And over this show, I've heard that from many comedy writers. Why do you think those shows are so influential?
1: Well, Bilko was just so funny. Uh, I, I just loved this character who was such a scam artist, and the jokes were fast and furious. And for the Dick Van Dyke show, I mean, for me personally, um, you know, as a nerd uh, growing up as a teenager at the time and being girl crazy, uh, I was in love with Laura Petrie, Mary Tyler Moore. And in this show, she was married to a comedy writer. And I thought, wait a minute, you don't have to be able to be a football star to get a girl like that. You can be a comedy writer. You can be funny. I can be funny. Maybe there's hope for me yet. Uh, also, the Dick Dyke show in context in the 1960s was so much better and sharper and funnier than anything else that was on, it, it was just a, a revelation. I mean, when you had Gilligan's Island and Camp Run Amuck and crap like that, uh, the Donna Reed show and things that were not remotely funny, and then the Dick Van Dyke show comes along and you're like actually laughing out loud and the stories are relatable and they're about People and about situations that you've encountered. Um, to me, it was it was just a, a revelation. It's just a, an oasis out there.
0: Yeah, I've always said that in the '60s, besides the Dick Van Dyke Show and Get Smart, there weren't any really funny comedy shows out there.
1: Yeah, I can't really think of of any uh, there. There was a show called uh, He and She. I was
0: just going to say that.
1: Which was was kind of funny. And there was a show called Love on a Rooftop, which was kind of funny. And there was a a show called Occasional Wife, which had some funny moments. But no, by and large, uh, like you say, you know, the Patty Duke show. (laughs) I know. And I watched that crap. But, you know, in my day, we didn't have 9,000 channels uh, and and our own videos and TikTok. Uh, so you watch what's ever on. And I look back now on like an old episode of the Patty Duke show and, and I go, what the hell? <laughs> what the hell is I watching every week?
0: When you had the idea about being a writer, were you, was that earlier than high school? Were you in high school?
1: No, it, it actually came Later, I you know, I always kind of had it in the back of my mind, but I was also very involved in radio at the time. And uh, when I was in college, I spent a lot of time in the campus radio station and uh, eventually became a, a disc jockey until I had the realization that I don't want to be 50 years old uh, still playing pretty woman. By Roy Orbison uh, for the nine billionth time um, and so I, I thought wow I, I remember I went to see the movie Sleeper, Woody Allen movie that just come out and uh, it was like a light bulb went off, off over my head when I saw this guy is doing story and he's got physical jokes and verbal jokes And here's an actual audience laughing. You can see an audience laughing. You know, when you're doing funny stuff on the radio, you have no idea whether it lands, whether it works. You have no clue. And so I thought, yeah, this is really what I want to do. And at the time I was, again, kind of getting disillusioned being a disc jockey, bouncing around the country It was, you know, W O L D, that Harry Chapin song, uh, was out. And uh, I did not want to become that guy. You know, I didn't want to become 45 years old doing the morning show in Dayton, Ohio. (laughs) So uh, writing seemed to be a much better alternative, even though, you know, it's a a real crapshoot to break in, but it was worth a try.
0: Right. And you met. Uh, David Isaacs in 1969?
1: No, no, 1973. Please, I'm not that old. Uh, We were in the Army Reserves together and uh, he too had a desire to write. Neither of us had written, taken any courses in writing. And like I said, I was a disc jockey at the time. I was on uh, San Bernardino and I promptly got fired uh, after Army summer camp. I came back to L.A. to live with my parents and send out tapes to try to get my next job. And I called David and I said, hey, remember me from the unit? Uh, I'm going to try writing a script. Uh, You want to write it with me? And we got together and and discussed it and decided to, um, you know, be a partnership at that point, and that was, so it's coming up on 50 years in October. Wow.
0: And I always wondered, how come it's Levine and Isaacs?
1: Well, because we went alphabetically and neither of us could spell. Ah. <laughs> no, actually, it's it started as Levine and Isaacs because I I called him and said, <laughs> do you want to team up with me? But I said to him uh, after like a couple of years, I said, look, if you want, why don't we just switch it every year and so you can have top billing for a year, then I'll have top billing for a year, et cetera. And David said, no, you know what? The credit is on for just a few seconds. My parents and relatives know where to look. Mm-hmm. Just, just kind of leave it that way. But that, that's why it was, it was Levine and Isaacs.
0: You wrote a spec script for the Mary Tyler Moore show, correct? Yes. Was it a Ted centric episode? The way
1: we learned how to yes, no, no. It was a Murray centric okay. episode, actually. All right. We we learned how to write by. Watching the Mary Tyler Moore Show, we get together every Saturday night, 9 o'clock. Back in those days, you know, there's no videotape. So if you wanted to watch the Mary Tyler Moore Show, you can't go on Peacock and Mm -hmm. stream it whenever you like. You had to be there Saturday night at 9 in front of the television. And we had a tape recorder, a cassette recorder, and I would hold a microphone up to the speaker and we would record the show. Then we would go back and write an outline, detailed outline based on that episode. And we did that week after week after week until eventually we started seeing the patterns. And we started figuring out just how they plotted those shows. And then we wrote our our spec.
0: And it got you, I've listened to your show, it got you a lot of meetings.
1: It got us an assignment on the Jeffersons. The story editor of The Jeffersons, Gordon Mitchell, read the script and really liked it and invited David and I to come in and pitch stories for The Jeffersons. And uh, they bought one of them. And so that was, that was our first sale. And once you've actually sold a script, you can get into the Writers Guild, you can get better agents. Uh, again, a, a different world back then. Um, you had three networks and that's it. So it's like you either break into the NBA or you play in Israel.
0: Right.
1: You know, there's not a lot of minor leagues and CBAs and things like that, uh, that there are now where you can sell shows that are on networks or streaming services that no one's ever heard of, but so what? You sold a show, you're making money, you can get into the Writers Guild, you're a writer. Uh, God bless you. Um, But for us, again, it was, I think there were fewer people trying to do it, but it was much harder to break in because there were so few openings along the way.
0: Mm. You did a show, an episode of a show called Joe and Sons.
1: Yeah, that was our second script. And uh, and that was that was uh, a a fun experience Uh, working with him and Jerry Stiller was on that that show. Uh, Barry Miller, who was in Fame and in uh, Saturday Night Fever. And um, yeah, that show, once we sold that show, then we actually quit our jobs and figured, okay. let's try to make a go of this full time. Even when we were doing the Jeffersons, we kept our jobs.
0: And then you went on to the Tony Randall show. Yes. Well, well,
1: well what? what happened was we wrote, we wrote a, a mash. We got a mash assignment. And that was the out of sight, out of mind episode. The one where Hawkeye is temporarily blind. And we we did that freelance for them. And that show that script became our golden ticket. We sent that around and we were getting offers pretty much everywhere. And we got an offer to write a, uh, a freelance episode of the Tony Randall show at MTM and MTM was like Camelot. That was really where we wanted to be. So, uh, we wrote the script and based on the script, they were happy enough to hire us full-time meanwhile while we were on the tony randall show we were moonlighting writing more episodes of mash so we'd be writing mash on the weekends and the tony randall show during the week and at the end of that year that was the first of two years of the tony randall show but at the end of that year we got offered uh a story editors on mash and so so we opted to leave Tony Randall for MASH, which, looking back, I think was probably a wise decision.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would think I would say so. A question about MASH. Um, well, yes. Uh, a couple, actually. But um, You worked with a, this guy who's really, really funny, and I saw him a couple times in the Tonight Show, Ronnie Graham. What was he like in real life? Oh, uh, Ronnie Graham,
1: for those who don't know, Ronnie Graham was an actor... Cabaret performer, comedian. Uh, he was in a famous Broadway show called The New Faces of 1952. Uh, he did um, a series of commercials for uh, for mobile gasoline in the early 70s where he was Mr. Dirt. That was a big campaign and only ended when there was a gas shortage. Um, but Ronnie was just this larger-than-life character who was very funny, great stories, just a, a great cheerleader, and was was just a, a breath of fresh air uh, in in the room in M.A.S.H.
0: So he's one of those people that are like them, what they are like on talk shows, that's what he's like in person?
1: Oh, very much, that's, that's exactly him, yeah. exactly him. Uh, Great laugh, always smiling. Um, Just, you know, very funny. And, you know, kept kept the room going, you know, bringing that positive energy. I know one of your previous guests, Tom Leopold, uh, actually performed that role in the Cheers room. Great to have people who are up and funny and it just kind of is infectious and really is, is kind of a way of recharging your batteries to have somebody like that. Uh, in addition to the fact that you're constantly laughing.
0: Watched on um, on Hulu, all the MASH episodes that you wrote and I would watch uh, MASH Olympics was one I watched. My daughter walked in and she started watching it and she was really enjoying it. She's 10 years old and you know they're, they're they're playing. You know they're doing the athletic competition, and then you know at the end of the show they're in the they're in the surgical tent, and she's like, well, "Why are they doing surgery?" And she didn't under. And I was like, no, "No, no, the show's about doctors. It just so happens they were just playing outside this episode. Like I don't know if she thought it was about a like, camp, right? But that's a really that's a really good. Well, and
1: and even the, the point of the Olympics was for them to try to. Uh, get a soldier's weight down. Played marvelously by Mike McManus.
0: Marching the Korea is one of my favorite episodes because it just David Ogden Steers is just so jerk like in that, but he's not as but he's not as bad as a jerk as Larry Linville was.
1: Interesting fun fact: uh, that episode, although it aired late in the season, was the very first episode written with Charles. David and I wrote that early on, and we gave that to Jim Fritzell and Everett Greenbaum as a guide when they wrote the the show that opened the season that introduced him. But we would go out to the Malibu ranch and film one day for each episode, but we needed the light. So in the summertime, they're filming from 6 in the morning till 8.15. Once you go off of daylight savings, it made no sense to go out to the ranch. So if we had an episode that didn't require going out to the ranch, we usually held it back to the later part of the season, and since most of that show took place at night and was a poker game, we, we held it back. But again, the reality is, uh, David and I wrote the very first episode that featured the Charles character.
0: Did, was there any problems with the network when you, with, with our finest hour, because parts of it were in black and white? Cause I know even in the seventies, networks didn't like that.
1: No, because it had been established with the, uh, the episode, The Interview. And CBS came to us and wanted a one-hour clip show, which was just a pain in the ass because in addition to everything else, we had to to go at night and just screen all these episodes and try to piece something together. So the fact that we were able to do that, uh, I think CBS was was just happy that we had a a show on the air so no we didn't get any flag for them about
0: that your most famous episode is POV and it's just amazing when you watch the show it's just a different take on what's going on in the hospital that you've seen over all these many episodes obviously it's a different point of view that's why it's called that and it makes the show seem so different
1: well Again, this had been established by Larry Gelbart and Gene Reynolds, who were the, the creators of the show, the first four years, the, the best four years in my estimation. But um, yeah, I remember I came up with the idea of doing a point of view show, and it took us like two years to sell it to the showrunner, Burt Metcalf. Because I basically said, look, this is either going to be the best or worst show of the year. It's either going to come off or it's, it's going to be terrible <laughs> and, a, and a huge embarrassment. We decided to go for it. And a key was uh, David and I watched a movie that was done, all point of view, called Lady in the Lake. And it was a noir Philip Marlowe movie starring Robert Montgomery. And it was all done from his perspective. And the only time you actually saw Robert Montgomery was when he was in front of a mirror. But uh, what we learned is that when the other characters talked to him, then it, it was fine. But when he was talking to the other characters, you're just staring at somebody listening. And it was very awkward. So... We got the idea, well, what if the problem that the patient has is that he can't speak, that his larynx is damaged? and So the episode is trying to get him to to speak. And that way, we eliminated that problem, and it was just our people talking. And when he does talk at the end, spoiler alert, uh, you know, when he says, you know, thank you, it really resonates. Mm. And I must say, too, I, I, I can never talk about that point of view episode without giving the lion's share of credit to director Charles Dubin. Did an amazing job. And again, back then there were no steady cams. <laughs> there were these giant 200-pound cameras, and he had to like make all of that work, uh, put it in helicopters, and and everything else. And uh, he just did, he just did an amazing job. We were nominated for an Emmy and lost. And that does not piss me off as much as the fact that he was nominated for an Emmy and lost. He certainly deserved, uh, he deserved an Oscar for that
0: it's very well directed it, it's a great episode of any of any television show
1: you know again what's interesting well again what's interesting is we saw the final cut in a screening room and it was horrifying because you're these giant heads <laughs> are you know looking down at you and you're going yeah yeah we thought oh my god this doesn't work this is you know, ultimately we've put it all together and, and this is a disaster. And, um, you know, I didn't even tell friends or anyone to like, watch it, you know, when it came on that Monday night, uh, we were on up against Monday night football and I was hoping that there would be overtime (laughs) that, you know, people, you know, wouldn't see it. But when I watched it on television, and the heads on a 19-inch screen are normal size, all of a sudden it worked like a charm. I was surprised and very relieved. But boy, when I saw it on the big screen, I was like, oh, my God, what a train wreck this is.
0: (laughs) That's what I was going to ask you if you saw it before the airing.
1: Uh, yeah, obviously yes. Oh God, we we saw, we saw these shows so many times before the airings that when we would see the show on the air, I would be almost kind of making mental notes to myself. Oh, I think we can cut off of that shot sooner, or um, you know, what I we I think we can stay on the master a little bit longer, and then I have to realize, oh wait, no, this is on the air. <laughs> it's done.
0: Some people don't like to see their work on TV because they've seen it so many times already before it gets there. Yeah,
1: you know, I think it's always kind—it's—it's of, always kind of special, the fact that it's actually on television. And you know, there's the commercials, and you know, there's the the station ID at the front of it. You know, KCBS TV Channel Two. Bam! It's like, man. All the shows I've watched on KCBS Channel 2 in my lifetime, and now suddenly there's one that I wrote is on. So, yeah, I I still get a kick out of
0: watching it on TV. I totally agree with you because I think you are a TV fan, first and foremost, as well as obviously being a TV writer, but you're a fan of television. Sure. Sure. Ironically,
1: see when they first aired because Thursday night was our rewrite night at 12:30 so uh, I would you know tape them on my VCR um, but uh, no a lot of my Cheers episodes I never actually saw the first run I was sitting here
0: You did a show which is really good really funny has a big cult following uh open all night and unfortunately (laughs) people remember open all night okay the episodes are on youtube (laughs) except your your two episodes that you wrote aren't on youtube
1: i know what's with that
0: i don't know i i don't know
1: what's with that (laughs) both of them are pretty funny one of
0: them we are nominated for a writers guild award yeah I, i saw that Love to whoever taped them. I think somebody just taped them 40 years ago, and those were the ones they taped and put them on. But yeah, I'd love to see like a DVD release.
1: Yeah, me too.
0: Especially the one when David Letterman comes. Me too.
1: It was done by the same. Yeah, David Letterman did a um, did a cameo. Uh, it was done by the same writers who did the Tony Randall show, which is how we knew them and the bob newhart show tom patchett and jay tarsus and um yeah and david and i were in an episode one of our episodes because jay was a regular on the show so we said if jay's a regular we want to be in it and they get okay fine write yourself in it so we were two swinging lawyers trying to pick up female mud wrestlers at a mace class
0: Okay. Cheers is one of my favorite shows of all time. And you were there from the beginning. Mm-hmm. When it was just you and your partner and Glenelis Charles. and Yeah,
1: that was the original staff. And we had one day a week, uh, Jerry Belson came in for the table reading day. And for the rewrite night on Thursdays, David Lloyd came in. But that was it. I mean, we had some freelance scripts, people like Ken Aston and Sam Simon and Heidi Perlman and uh, Earl Pomerantz. Uh, but no, in terms of the staff, it was pretty much just the four of us the entire season. And I would put the first season of Cheers up against the best season of any show. Really proud of it.
0: Cheers, is pro- it, I think, is the greatest sitcom ever. So I would say, yeah, uh, that's the first season is is a great season couple episodes I want to ask you about. It. Any friend of Diane's has two, has the best coach joke. What he does when he can't figure something out, he bangs his head against the uh, bar. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> and then D- Diane uh, says, oh, yeah, I should do that. And then he said something like, okay, if it helps, he starts banging his head. It's so funny. And the Russian poem.
1: Yeah, the Russian poem David and I wrote that Russian poem. We knew that that Russian poetry was really dreary. So we thought that that would be that would be fun. uh, To write this, you know, another Christmas of agony and um, And to his credit, we can thank Jim Burroughs because when we wrote the script, Glenn and Les were like, "I don't really kind of know what this is." And Jimmy said, "Leave it. It's really funny. yeah, um and and that it's it's so funny because people write to the show saying, "Where is this <laughs> you know, I want to read more from from this guy and, <laughs> and stuff like that. And you know, there are people who actually think it's real.
0: Yeah, I was listening to a podcast about Cheers, and the hosts were like, yeah, I'm going to look that person up on the internet after the show, find out what other poems he's written.
1: Yeah, yeah, Karishnikov's, Another Christmas of Agony.
0: You wrote an episode that's actually very famous for how progressive it was, Boys in the Bar. Did you receive any notes from NBC about that episode?
1: No, no, we did not. Um, you know, you look back at it, and... You know, it's like our characters are homophobic, but I mean, we did it to, to make a point. And, um, when we had the table reading, which went okay, there are table readings that went better. We had the table reading and went okay. And we're walking out and Ted Danson says to me, don't change a word. And I thought he was being sarcastic. So I said, Hey, fuck you, Ted, we're trying something here. And he goes wait no no don't change your word it's it's really good um so we're very proud of that episode we won the writers guild award we were nominated for an emmy and we won the glad award from the gay community and i find it interesting now where there are woke people saying that it's offensive and it should be taken out of the rotation. And you know, and I want to say, hey, <laughs> you know, it won the award from the gay community. Right. So it's like, how insensitive were we?
0: And look, five years later, Norm was pretending to be gay to get a to get a job with Wolf in Frazier's. Uh... Exactly. Right. So I mean, if if
1: Cheers. If we were doing the first season of Cheers today, we wouldn't do that episode. Right. But this was 1982. So we're talking, oh, God, 41 years ago.
0: I uh, listened to, there was a hour snippet of you as Beaver Cleaver on YouTube. from <laughs> Really? Yeah. And it's, it's so funny is when I'm listening to it. It was from November 26th, 1977. Okay. That's two days before I was born. And I was like, what are the odds? I'm, I'm listening to this guy. He was on the radio two days before. And you were talking about when King Charles came, just came to visit MASH.
1: Oh, yeah. That's a true story. Yeah. Um, so King Charles came to visit MASH, and we were all in a receiving line. And we were all told how to be so respectful and everything. And, and Charles came down the line shaking hands and he got to me and shook my hand. And I don't know what prompted me to blurt it out, but I did. I said, What advice could you give young people thinking of getting into your profession? <laughs> and and all the handlers and everyone was just horrified. But he laughed. So so I got a laugh out of King Charles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's weird that those air checks have popped up. Um, you know, I, when I was a disc jockey, I never prepared. I never went in with a whole page of joke lines. So I figure I got two and a half minutes for every record. I can come up with something funny to say in two and a half minutes. So I never prepared, and for the most part, I then never remembered what I said. So. When I listened back to that tape, it was like like, like listening to somebody else. It was like weird but I would hear some of these lines, and and I would go, um, "Oh yeah, okay, that's pretty funny. That's that's yeah." And then I would listen to some others, and I would go, "Oh God, really? You said that, you idiot!"
0: So- <laughs> I loved Jay Thomas's Eddie LeBec character on on Cheers. And you created him, and then you had to kill him.
1: Yes. Uh, Jay was also the morning disc jockey at a station in L.A., and uh, he was talking on the air to a listener who said something about how great it must be to be on Cheers. And he said, yeah, it's not so great. You know, you have to kiss Rhea Perlman. Right. Well, Rhea heard that. And was not too pleased. And Rhea's the sweetest person. I mean, in... The eleven years we did the show, I don't ever remember Rhea being mad, except for this one time. And she wanted him off the show. And of course we were gonna accommodate her. She was was one of our stars. And the problem was that we had married them. Right. And um so we said can we at least bring him back for the no i don't ever want to see him so then we figured okay well we have to kill, kill him but we also have to design it in such a way that you don't feel sorry for carla you ultimately feel happy that carla is out of this marriage it's a pretty tall order. And so what we came up with was the fact that that he was a bigamist. And we had Anne DeSalvo, who looked like Rhea. Yeah. And so that this this news comes out at the funeral. And it turned out to be a very funny episode. Yeah, I'm really proud of that episode.
0: During the 1986 World Series, they did a thing where... Bob Costas came into Cheers and asked Ted Danson, uh, Sam Malone, how he would pitch to Gary Carter. Did you write that?
1: No. Oh, okay. No. no. We actually weren't there that day. Okay. Yeah. We wrote the um, – for the first season, uh, NBC had the Super Bowl that year. And we – Wrote a scene. Pete Axhelm, who was part of the NBC uh, pregame, he was like a uh, a gambling tout, uh, and the Super Bowl was in Pasadena that year, so he was out there, and we did a a cheer scene. And I remember uh, NBC asked for this this scene, and the Charles Brothers just turned to me and David and. And said, You guys go write it. I you know, do whatever you want, just mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So we wrote this four minute scene, four or five minute scene, and they filmed it, and we knew that it was gonna air sometime during the Super Bowl pregame. Well the Super Bowl pregame is like ten hours. Mm-hmm. Right. So he figured it could be at 8 in the morning they're going to show this stupid thing. They ended up showing it just before the game. And there were 80 million people who saw that scene. It was never rerun again. It was never on any of the Cheers DVDs. The Cheers DVDs were pretty terrible there was like no bonus things it was nothing um and it was like basically lost and uh a friend of mine who is a a reporter this was years later and we were at dodger stadium and he was saying how he taped every super bowl and i said do you happen to have The 1983 Super Bowl, and I explained what this was, and and he came in the next day with the tape, and he said, "Yep, it's on it." (laughs) So I made a copy of it, and um, I mean, I had the script; I've always had the script, but I never had an actual copy of the thing, and I put that on YouTube. Oh, the YouTube, yeah.
0: Blush Jock, uh, uh, something, 83
1: or whatever.
0: That what? You were at Bush?
1: Yeah, I don't, know. I don't even know. I don't, I don't even know. You just go to Cheers Super Bowl, mm. and uh, it'll probably take you to it. It's also on my blog, which I no longer do, but uh, every Super Bowl Sunday I used to repost it.
0: Mm. Did you also write the NBC All-Star Hour intro from Cheers? I don't know if you remember that.
1: No, no. But we did write, there was Mickey Mouse 50th birthday
0: right.
1: special and there's a scene where Mickey goes into the bar and uh, Jim Burroughs got a call from Mike Eisner saying we're going to send over this script. It doesn't look to be too good because the Cheers writers fix it we said sure (laughs) so we basically wrote a whole new scene took us about an hour 45 minutes an hour wrote this scene and um and and they they filmed it and about two weeks later this big truck pulls up and each of us gets this giant bag of Disney merch. I mean, there's phones and there's stuffed animals and there's videos and there's watches and clocks and paperweights and like tons of Disney stuff, which, you know, at the time we all had small children so this was, this was fantastic. I mean, each bag was probably, you know, four or $500 in merchandise. Retail probably cost them $15. Um, but, uh, you know, we were all thrilled. On the other hand, had we been paid for doing this scene, we probably each get three, four thousand dollars, <laughs> but we were very happy with the Disney swag.
0: You invented the bar wars, the bar wars series of episodes. Yes, and the first one was with Wade Boggs' pants. Mm-hmm. Was he was he the first guy on the script? Was it always Wade Boggs?
1: Yes. When we were planning the script. We thought, okay, we should have a um, a Boston sports star come into the bar and have them think it's an imposter and run him out. So, who is the biggest sports star at the time? And it was Wade Boggs. I said, yeah, but this is March, this was like the last <laughs> show we filmed of the season this is march and he's in spring training and we had our casting agent check just in case and um you know his manager said yeah he could miss a couple days what the hell <laughs> and uh, so yeah we had wade boggs we knew we had wade boggs uh going in but all of this this was the end of the season nbc ordered the show at the last second we had to write it over the weekend we plotted the story with the charles brothers on friday afternoon so yeah wade boggs was in by monday morning there was a script and i think like thursday or friday he was there and we filmed it Mm. so from the idea to his being a part of it it was like a week
0: it's crazy and then you wrote the uh where have all the floorboards gone on the classic kevin McHale episode
1: yeah yeah um we had used kevin in another episode and he was very funny and we thought well let's let's bring him back and uh david and i are you know are big fans of basketball i i called a little basketball um i'm actually now a celtics fan (laughs) i'm a i'm a big fan of their announcer sean grandy and i'm a i'm a celtics fan used to be a big laker fan but eh, i don't like the current lakers um but um yeah so you know they have the famous parquet floor it's in the old boston gardens uh and um yeah, that was great. We got to go back to Boston and, and and film scenes there.
0: Yes, and a lot of your episodes though are really um, are really good because they're almost all in the bar. Obviously, that one wasn't, but like "License to Hill," the where uh, Crusty Alley does not renew the liquor license, and they mm-hmm. have to keep everybody. It's such an old screwball comedy type episode, and it doesn't leave the bar.
1: Well, I agree with you. My favorite episodes are the ones where we didn't leave the bar. Um, You'll notice the first season of Cheers, we never leave the bar, ever. The first time that you left the bar was the opening episode of season two when you went to Diane's apartment. Prior to that, you had never left the bar. And those are kind of my, my favorite episodes. Um, one of my favorites is To All the Girls We Loved Before, which is Fraser's Bachelor Party. And, and that one holds a special place in my heart because we said to the Charles brothers, we want to do something as an experiment. We want to do a show with absolutely no outline. The basic premise is Frazier has a bachelor party, has second thoughts about getting married by the end, decides to go through with it. That's it. And then just sort of see where it goes and have the freedom to just like really riff and see what happens. Yeah. And they had enough faith in us that they said, okay, go. And that's what we did. And uh, it's one of my favorite episodes. And I'm very proud of the fact it has one of the most iconic lines, which is mine, which is the Fraser, um Wang Chung line. Yeah. Everybody have fun tonight. Everybody Wang Chung tonight. And the thing that I love so much about that is I saw, a documentary or something about 80s music right. and they had the guy from Wang Chung on there and he was saying how his kids were not remotely impressed by what he had done until they saw the Cheers episode <laughs> and when Cheers mentioned Wang Chung right. that, that that has a soft spot in my heart. That that whoever the lead singer is of Wang Chung, that uh, I I I helped his daughter appreciate what her dad did.
0: I always liked the way Frazier that, that little speech before he goes. when you talking about? He was in the car, and one of those tribal songs came on. It just the way he says it is just really funny. Um, you said I, mean, I know. It's like no one else could do that and get that laugh. Right, exactly. Um, I've heard you say that your least favorite Bar Wars episode is Bar Wars 6, the one with the where they get Sam to believe a mobster at Boy Gary's Old Town Tavern. But the one yeah. thing the one thing I do like yeah. about it, it's the last acting that Sheldon Leonard ever did.
1: That's true. That's true. So We had Sheldon Leonard, and I I got to meet Sheldon Leonard, which to me was, you know, a huge event because he was the executive producer of the Dick Van Dyke show. Yes. You know, it is thanks to Sheldon Leonard that there was a Dick Van Dyke show.
0: As well as... Yeah, but it
1: was still of the the bar. Look, you got to have the best one, and you got to have the worst one. Right. And that's for me, that's the worst one.
0: And you wrote the last episode to feature uh, Nick Tortelli. And you wrote the last episode to feature Harry the Hat. Mm -hmm. And you wrote my all time, one of my all time favorite, Here's Cliffy. (laughs) I just love that episode.
1: I know. That episode is just so bizarre. That's the one where Cliff gets the joke on The Tonight Show. It was Johnny Carson's last year. Right. And um he rarely did sitcoms remember there's a big deal where he was going to do the mary tyler moore show and the lights are out you just hear his voice um but we had this crazy idea but we figured all right let's make sure we can get johnny carson before we write it and um and carson agreed to do it and uh we we filmed it on the tonight show set after a tonight show episode before the tonight show taping that night they said we're gonna film a cheers episode afterwards if you want to stay and everybody stayed you know nobody left for that um but that was that was so surreal. Um, I got there early. Uh, David, David was on vacation. David was out of town. Um, but I knocked on his I knocked on his door, and introduced myself and said, "I'm the writer of this show, and I'm happy to make any adjustments you want to, for you to feel more comfortable." Anyway. It's fine. It's fine. So we go and we, we're we filming this, and they bring the cameras right onto the set. So I'm standing between two cameras, and right behind me is the band, and to my right is the curtain. And so Johnny Carson comes out. They do the da-da-da-da-da, you know, they're filming. And Johnny comes out. And he was like walking, like right by, I mean, I could reach over and and touch him. And he goes to the front and in order to have the contrast between uh, the good jokes and uh, Cliff's bad one, we had to write like three good Tonight Show jokes. So we wrote three Tonight Show jokes, and there they were on the cue cards. And it's like there's Johnny Carson delivering our lines, getting laughs from the audience. It it was like I said. Tell him that he did it wrong.
0: You (laughs) botched my joke, Johnny Carson.
1: Is lecturing Chuck.
0: Did you take
1: the cue card? Yes, we did. We have them. Great. Yes. Um, it was also we thought just ridiculous, but what the hell? That mom winds up on the couch.
0: And then Norm. So,
1: <laughs> it's a it's a bizarre episode. Uh, just a totally bizarre episode of of Cheers. Um, certainly a last year show, but. Um, uh, but it's it's very funny.
0: Yeah, I I just love it. Just the idea that he gets the letter, which you would think that they were gonna air, they were gonna do that joke that day, but he's off to Los Angeles and he has the exact day that they're gonna do the joke. It, well, that's why we had to create. We had to make sure that the
1: joke was specific so I think it was like a Mother's Day joke.
0: Doc Severinsen's birthday. So
1: that, Doc Severinsen's birthday okay. So we knew that it was something so that it would be that, that the joke would be delivered on a specific day in the future to eliminate that problem. Got it. Because okay. yeah you're right if they say you know we're gonna, gonna print it you don't know when you know I I draw cartoons for the New Yorker. And they buy a cartoon, and I I have to look in the magazine to see when it actually prints. They don't tell me. You know, it can be six months. Um, they don't tell me. Um, so the same thing, I'm sure, with with jokes. I mean, the truth is, I don't think they ever buy just a freelance joke, <laughs> but. What the hell? Creative license. No, right. Movie magic. Yeah.
0: Um, one interesting thing about that, ep- about that episode of uh, The Tonight Show and Cheers is on the last episode of Cheers, of The Tonight Show, they show what a typical day is like at The Tonight Show, and they show the production of that episode of The Tonight Show with Stevie Wonder. And what's interesting is – that the night that you taped was the last time they ever did Art Fern in the Tea Time movie.
1: Oh, wow. Well, wow. Um, I sat in the green room. And for about 15 minutes, the green room was me and Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> and she turned out to be so much fun she was great she was great so i you know my stuff is being done by johnny carson i'm hanging out with elizabeth taylor <laughs> you know i will say this too for for johnny um he was the ultimate pro he was not in any real hurry it's not like sinatra where okay guys you got one take and that's it uh, he was, are you happy? I'm happy to go and do it again. What, whatever you need. He was the consummate professional.
0: Uh, I just want to ask you a couple questions about The uh, Simpsons. Dancing Homer, one of the best episodes of season two. And then you got to co- be the announcer.
1: Yeah. Oh, that was really fun. I got to announce. And also, for my cartooning, um, I designed the capital city goofball. Oh, wow. So that was really fun to see one of my sketches actually turn into an animated character. Um, yeah. Uh, Sam Simon who we had worked with on a number of shows, um, and really was the creative genius of the Simpsons, uh, asked us to, to do an episode. And I had done three years of minor league baseball play by play. And so uh, we thought, we came up with that story uh, and it was really fun and, and really fun to um, to record the voice. Mm. And, you know, we talked earlier about having seen cuts of my shows over and over and over again. Not this time, because it was animated and all, um, we recorded it in like May, and the show aired in November. and the first time I saw it was on the air. Mm. And that was so bizarre hearing my voice coming out of a cartoon character's mouth. And I used the name fun fact. I used the name Dan Horde, who was my broadcast partner. In Syracuse, in the minor leagues, and Dan Horde is now is the longtime radio voice of the Cincinnati Bengals and uh, University of Cincinnati Bearcats.
0: Mm. I know, but just, just basically, you just scratched the surface of, of your career. Um, the last question: If you could tell me a little bit um, about uh, the late Gabrielle James.
1: Oh, Gabby who passed away, I don't know when you're going to air this, but she passed away about a week or so ago. Uh, our script supervisor was so nice and, and so sharp. You know, that's a job where she has to keep track of everything. And it's like, if Think about it on Cheers where people are drinking all the time she has to remember okay you had the glass in your left hand you poured the coffee after you said this line okay there were pretzels on the table before Um, she was you know, and and it's the kind of job where a lot of times they'll get rattled or a lot of times it's just like, look, I got too much to do. Don't bother me. But she was she was never like that. And she was also kind of fun. There were times when like an actor was um, was out for the day and we would have the run through and. Gabby would fill in for Kirstie Alley or, or, you know, um, uh, Rhea Perlman. And, and there, there were times when we would be on the floor watching the ultimate filming of a show where we would go, you know, Gabby did that line better.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but, but she was a sweetheart.
0: She helped a lot with Kelsey learning the lines quickly
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, she she knew all the lines, she, everything, the the continuity. Um, Yeah. Because, you know, you would do a scene and then decide to pick it up later that night. So you're going to the table and where were the cups? <laughs> were there pretzels on the table? You know that 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 kind of thing. You know, um, when did you pick up the the coffee cup? So you know it it matches and everything. Uh, the attention to detail, and she just made it look effortless. Yeah. You know, there are so many people behind the scenes that deserve credit. Um, Props on Cheers. Ed LaPorta. I mean, imagine how many glasses and trays Mm. and bowls of nuts (laughs) and various things, you know, had to be there every week lemons that Sam was cutting and and all like that. Um, I mean, it's stuff you don't think of unless you watch the show and you go, wait, that's totally wrong, (laughs) you know? Um, But but everybody from props to lighting to sound, um, you know, the camera guys worked incredibly hard um, and would make adjustments. If an actor was off their mark, then the camera guy would very gently go in and and get them. Uh, It was, you know, having directed shows myself, um, I can tell you that Cheers was like, as a director, getting behind the wheel of a Ferrari. Mm. Yeah, yeah, uh, all of them deserve great credit, the stand-ins who had to stand for hours while all the cameras were being positioned, um, everybody involved with that show worked really hard and took great pride in it, and um, you know, I, it always kind of bothers me when I see the end credits, and especially if it's on right when you it's... Know, I Hallmark or one of those, and they squeeze the credits. I mean the credits at the end are small enough anyway that nobody can read it. But um, you know all of those people deserve their one second of shared screen time. Least you can do is have it full screen,
0: right? Nobody complains about the
1: credits. No, you hear the song; it's thirty seconds. What's the big deal?
0: Right, it's. I uh, I interviewed Joel Thurm because I always thought his his credit on Taxi. So I as I said, I want to talked to him about working mm-hmm. on that. I, I I don't know who Glen Glen Sound is, but I know it's important. Right. Well, thank you very right. much. Thank you very much for doing this.
1: My pleasure. When when will this uh drop?
0: February fourth.
1: Okay, great. All right.
0: Have a good day.
1: Okay. Thanks very
0: much. Bye. Thank you. Right bye.